Thank you, Pastor Dennis. It is a privilege to be here with you today. Um, this is uh, an honor to come up. I don't normally make it up to this part of the Metroplex. Uh, this is a long way from South Fort Worth, uh, as I gathered this morning. Um, but uh, it is a joy to be here with you. Um, at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, I teach ethics um, and uh, direct our Center for uh, Cultural Engagement. And, uh, and it is one of the things that uh, is my responsibilities at the seminary is to deal with the topics that no one else wants to deal with. And uh, our president oftentimes uh, will contact me by email or one of the vice presidents will contact me by email and say, we need you to speak to this particular issue because nobody else wants to. And we already know that nobody likes you, so we're just going to let you go ahead and do it. And, um, and so at least I know my place at the seminary. Um, but it is, it is a joy to be here. I've actually had uh, Dennis's son in class and, uh, and so he is uh, at Southwestern, and, um, or I just graduated from Southwestern. Um, and, uh, and so it's been a, a joy to have him in class as well. Let's pray together uh, as we get started. Father, we come into your presence this morning. Lord, we know that uh, before us is a culture that does not understand who you are, does not understand your word, and feels the necessity to push back against anyone who attempts to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, as, as you have told us in your word. So Father, this morning I ask as we, as we jump into this difficult topic of an identity crisis in our culture as it relates to uh, gender and sexuality, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be lashed to your cross, that we would be tied to your word, and that we would understand what you mean when you tell us who we are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to uh, thank uh, Pastor Mike this morning. Uh, the song that uh, we sang right before, uh, we got, uh, right before the announcements, um, I just want to remind you of those words because it speaks so perfectly to what we want to talk about this morning. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Those words, those lyrics speak to us about who we are in Christ that no matter what storms we face or what drought we go through, no matter what the culture thinks of us or what the political process brings to us, he is there, he is speaking to us, and he is our all in all. Because ultimately, it is in him and him alone that we find our identity. Now, there's no doubt that you've probably been following in the news recently, the last couple of months, what has been happening in the Fort Worth Independent School District. Um, as you may have uh, noticed, um, at the end of April, the, uh, the superintendent and the trustees um, enacted some new policies related to uh, gender and sexuality, and specifically to uh, the, the question of transgender students. 
Now, if you, if you read the policies like I do, I, I live literally a quarter of a mile from one of our Fort Worth uh, public schools. One of our middle schools is only about a quarter of a mile from my house. So I just have to go down the block. At the end, I live at one end of the block. The school is, is at the, under the other end of the block across the street. And, and so as I started reading those policies and looking at them, it brought up some major concerns for me. And I started asking the question, how is it that we're supposed to respond in light of, of something like this, in light of these policies? How are, how are we to respond in love but in conviction to what Scripture tells us? And so I, I took it upon myself to, to write an email. Uh, that's the beauty these days. You, you can send communication so instantly. And so I wrote an email to my, my district trustee and also to the officers of the Fort Worth Independent School District um, and, and gave them an explanation of my concerns about the policies. Um, unfortunately, I'd like to say that I, I got a very swift response that, that explained everything to me. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, I received one email in return, and all it said was two words, and that was, thank you. It was from the first vice president of the school board. Um, and uh, so I, I did not hear from my particular uh, district representative, uh, nor the president or the second vice president of the, of the school board. Now, you might also know that just uh, this last week or so that the school board has revised those policies. Um, one of the key elements that they, that they took out of the policies related sp specifically to parental involvement. Uh, if you remember, the original policy said that it would be up to the student and the teacher and the administrators to determine whether they tell the parents anything. Now, I have four children who are, my youngest is starting kindergarten um, here in about a month. And, uh, and so for me as a parent, I started thinking, whoa, hold on. It's my job to be the parent. And if the school chooses, if something happens at the school, it is their job to inform me as the parent of what's going on. And so thankfully they have revised that part of the policies. But the policies themselves or, or, the, or the desire of the school board to institute such policies speaks to something larger in our culture. It speaks to an identity crisis that is happening in our culture regarding who we are. See, our culture has told us that our identity is found exclusively in gender and sexuality. So everything we see happening in media, in politics, in culture, in the school board, policies, and all these types of things revolve around the fact that my identity is, is defined by gender and sexuality. But that is not the message of Scripture. Scripture tells us something different. And so for that reason, as we want to look at this topic of gender and sexuality and the identity crisis in our culture, we need to go back to the beginning. It's always, always a, a wonderful place to start when we go back to the beginning and understand who it is that God created us to be. So this morning, we're going to be looking in the book of Genesis. We're going to be going to Genesis 1. We'll uh, spend our time in mainly three verses in Genesis chapter 1. We'll also look a little bit in Genesis chapter 2. But here in this text, we will find who we are, who God made us to be, and how we are to understand ourselves from a gendered perspective and from the perspective of sexuality. Now, before we jump into this topic, I want you to understand that and acknowledge the fact that this topic can create a very emotional response. 
Some of you may walk away from this angry, and I understand that. Some of you may walk away inspired to fight some kind of culture war. But my goal this morning is for you to walk away with a biblical understanding of who you are and who God made us to be. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be looking in verses 26 through 28. So Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Here's what we read. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here in this passage, we see three key elements of, what, of who God created us to be. So I want us to look at those and, and stay close to our text as, as we look at these three key elements. The first one is that we are created in the image of God. Verses 26 and 27 make this very clear. In fact, when you're reading Scripture, one of the things I like to, to teach my students, um, and even I, I actually, my wife and I actually teach third grade Sunday school at our church, and I even teach this to our third graders. But one of the things that we need to remember when we're looking at a passage of Scripture is when Scripture constantly repeats itself over and over and over again, you need to stop. And you need to pay attention to what's going on. And so notice what it says here. Verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. So three times in two verses, he talks about the image of God. And so we need to understand what is going on here is God is trying to communicate to us something very important about who we are. And that is that we are created in his image. Now what's interesting to note in this sixth day of creation is that the language also changes a little bit. You can go back to day one, we read, let there be light. You can go to, to day two and let there be an expanse. We see this language of let there be, or, or later on it says let the earth or let the sea bring forth. But something changes in verse 26. Let us make. It's not that the rest of creation was not God's personal creative act, but he is emphasizing that what is happening here is he is about to create the highest mark of creation. He's about to do something that is so significant that it differs from every other bit of creation. And he says, let us make man. And it's not just let us make man, but let us make man in our image. So God makes mankind in his image and likeness. Now, we're the only part of creation that is made this way. The skies, the stars, the sun, the moon, the waters, the fish, the birds, the animals, they are not made in God's image. Yet we are. So what does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of God? In one sense, it means that we are like God because we share in his attributes. Now, we are not perfect and we are not divine. 
but we share some of his attributes. We have the capacity to reason, to be wise, to love, and even to create. I just spent the last three weeks over in England and had the opportunity to go to a number of uh, museums and, and just to be able to stand there in front of these, these great pieces of art in the National Gallery and the Victoria and Albert Museum and, and other museums um, and, and be able to see the creative work of mankind. It's a reflection of who we are made in God's image and likeness. We share some of his attributes. In another sense, though, being made in the image and likeness of God means that we are created for a relationship with him. Unlike the rest of creation, God has designed us specifically to have a personal, intimate relationship with himself. When Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall, they were able to walk with God. After the fall, God's redemption plan was designed in order to restore that relationship so that we could once again have that intimate relationship with him. And it is in this that we really find our true identity, that we are made in God's image to be like him, to share in that relationship with him. A number of years ago, I, was, I remember uh, walking in through my apartment that my wife and I had, our first apartment that we had after we got married, and I was walking from the living room uh, towards, the, towards the bathroom and uh, turned the corner to go down the hallway, and the bathroom was at the end of the hallway, and there was uh, right through the door you could see the mirror. And so I turned the, I turned the corner, and I'm walking down the hallway, and I, I looked down into that mirror, and I saw something that surprised me. I saw my dad. Some of you may have had this experience before. My dad wasn't at my apartment. It was me. I was walking down the hallway, but I looked like my dad. I was walking like my dad. In fact, even my my parents got to go to England with me, and uh, the guy checking us in at DFW even said, oh, y'all must be related. And I thought, oh, boy. But it's because I'm made in my dad's likeness. There's no doubt when my father and I go places together that we're related. We have some of the same mannerisms. We say some of the same things. We have the same look. We have the same walk. Our voices are even similar. Because I'm like him. I'm one of his. I'm his son. Shouldn't others see that about us and our Heavenly Father? We're made in his image, in his likeness. We share his attributes. When they see us, they should say, ah, I know who he or she is related to. They're from God. You see, being made in God's image is the starting point for understanding gender and sexuality. You may say, well, we haven't even gotten to that yet. But we have to understand that this is where our identity is found. This is who we are. And if we are made in God's image, then what he says about us related to gender and sexuality is because he made us that way. And so that brings us to the second element here as it relates to gender and sexuality. And that is that we are created male and female. Look in verse 27. 
We read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So he, he's, he said this twice, that you're created in God's image. And so he, he's trying to get your attention. Then he's about to say something significant. He says, male and female, he created them. At this moment, 27 verses into God's special revelation, he introduces what is perhaps the most controversial topic in our day today. And that is the concept of binary gender, meaning two genders and only two genders. He says, he, male and female, he created them. So why is, this, why is this idea of two genders so controversial today? Well, first, it implies that there are only two genders, that when we start talking about gender, we can only talk about male and female. Now, if you take a moment, not, not right now, but after the service is over or when you get home, go get on your Facebook profile. Open it up, go to, go to your page, and, and click on the edit your profile button and go in and edit your personal information. For some of you, you, you created your Facebook profile so long ago you didn't even know you could edit it. And, but you, you go in there and you look at it and you go down to the gender section and you, you hit the drop down box. And it's gonna give you male, female, and custom. I'm not making this up. Go look at it. Select custom and start typing. Facebook currently offers over 70 customized options for gender. Now, this is an area of study that, that I spend a lot of time working in, that I spend a lot of time researching and writing. I don't know what all 70 of those options mean, but they offer currently over 70 options for gender. So the world that we live in does not agree with the world of Genesis 1:27, where God says, male and female, he created them. And, and this is controversial because we see from the text that there are only two genders, male and female. The second reason that this text is controversial as it relates to gender is that it implies a definite biological component to gender. Now, think about what's going on in the creation narrative here. He's talking about the physical, biological descriptions of everything that God is creating. He's creating the, the animals that walk upon the face of the earth. He's creating the birds that fly in the air. He is creating the fish that swim in the sea. And he's creating mankind. And he says he created them male and female. So there's a biological component here because that's exactly what he's, he's using to describe the rest of creation. But our culture says, not so fast. Our culture says that you should be able to self-identify your gender or lack thereof on the basis of, of how you feel or what you think with no correspondence whatsoever to your biology. And that is in contrast to what Scripture says here. In fact, it's so prevalent that 
even attempts to require individuals to use public restrooms that correspond with their biological gender have resulted in protests and boycotts. For example, just a couple of days ago, the NBA, if you follow basketball, the NBA decided to pull the 2017 All-Star Game and all the, the festivities that go along with that from the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, all on the basis that the North Carolina legislature passed a law saying that public restrooms can only be used um, according to your biological gender as stated on your birth certificate. The city of Charlotte stands to lose, I've seen estimates as much as $100 million in revenue because of that. This is the world in which we live. And you see, this is one area when we start talking about gender that many people begin to get uncomfortable. And they get uncomfortable because they know someone who struggles with gender. When, they, when you hear this idea that God created us male and female, it makes some of us a little uneasy because we know people who struggle or, or maybe you yourself struggle with this idea of gender. Now, what we have to remember here is that the, the part of the creation narrative and shortly after the creation narrative that we're not going to get to this morning, but happens in Genesis chapter 3, is called the fall. The fall impacts every aspect of creation. It impacts how we relate to God. It impacts how we relate to one another. It impacts how we relate to the rest of the universe and it impacts how we see ourselves. And so this idea that I'm not comfortable with my gender or I'm not comfortable with who I am is really the result of the fall. Now, before we go jumping down and, and pouring judgment on people who might have, a, have confusion regarding their gender, we have to realize that all of us have some form of confusion it might not relate to your gender or your sexuality, but it relates to how you view yourself in light of how God made you. Because we all have struggles, we all have difficulties, and we all have sin in our lives. That's the wonderful message of redemption, though, is that, that God sent his son to deliver us from sin. And it doesn't matter what that sin is, and it doesn't matter what that temptation is, and it doesn't matter what that confusion is. God says, I made you in my image. You were made to have a relationship with me. Find your identity in me. Or as the song said, I am your all in all. That's the reality of how we should look at ourselves. Let's set aside this identity that we find in other things. Because it's not just gender and sexuality. You may find your identity in your job. You may find your identity in your marriage. You may find your identity in your children. You may find your identity in what you do. 
None of those are appropriate for understanding who we are. We find our identity in Christ and who God made us to be in him. Now, as we move on, before we step aside from this issue of gender, I want us to remember two things. That as we think about this and we think about those who struggle or we think about those who, who walk away from this feeling uncomfortable, we have to recognize, first of all, that this description of gender, as, we, as we've seen here, is what comes from the text of Scripture. It is not my own or anyone else's. And second, to find our identity in anything other than God himself is to create a shallow identity. So you could set aside the question of gender for a second and just say anything else that you find your identity in creates a very shallow identity. The only full identity we find is in who God made us to be, and that is an image bearer reflecting his attributes in this world. Finally, the last element we see here in um, related to the questions of gender and sexuality is that we are created for one another. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice again the, the first phrase of what God says in verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is giving us something very specific about how we are to relate to one another in the context of having made us male and female. He speaks here to the fact that we are made for one another to be in relationship with one another and specifically within the relationship of marriage that leads to procreation. So the, the two realities we see in verse 28 are, are the, these ideas of procreation and marriage. First, the sexual relationship between a man and a woman would lead to children. This is one of those things you learn in your junior high biology class. That a sexual relationship between a man and a woman leads to children. This is something we've lost in our post-sexual revolution age. We, people, people have lost this idea that, that the sexual relationship creates babies. You know, when you have four children, people look at you funny. I, mean, I, don't, even, I don't even have half as many as some of my friends. I, I've got a friend who has 11 kids. His wife gets looked at real funny when she goes to the grocery store. You know, now, at this stage, she doesn't have 11 living with her at home. Um, but, uh, in fact, she's got grandchildren now. And she has one grandchild who's older than her youngest child. But um, uh, talk about people looking at you funny. But when my wife goes to the store with four children in tow, she's thankful, you know, school coming up, that means she can go back to the store by herself. Um, but when she goes to the store with four children in tow, people look at her funny. They say, are those all yours? Wow, you've got your hands full. Or my all-time favorite is, now you do know how that happens, right? You know, and my wife is much too sweet to say what I would possibly say is, yes, I'm fully aware of how that happens. Or, 
or something a little less or a little more embarrassing. That's, I usually don't say that because I'm with her when that happens. But we've lost this kind of concept that in many ways is common sense, but it's that the sexual relationship creates babies. And God made it that way. He told man and woman to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It was his design and intent from the very beginning. This is who he created us to be. Now, that also implies then that the sexual relationship between, that, is, that leads to procreation is then designed to be heterosexual in nature. God created us to fulfill the sexual relationship between a man and a woman. Although modern reproductive technologies provide some alternatives for how to bring about procreation, the basic biology is still the same. It takes male and female. That has not changed. Now, not only do we see procreation here, but we also see marriage involved. And you may say, well, I don't see marriage in this text. Well, it's because what happens immediately following this text that points us to marriage, we see this idea of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. We move to Genesis 2, and we see a fuller explanation of what's going on. Now, if you read Genesis 1 and 2 together, you'll see what's happening here. Verses 26, 27, 28 of chapter 1 tell us that God created mankind. He created them male and female. He created them to be fruitful and to multiply. And if you read chapter 2, what you will find in the beginning verses of chapter 2 is that there is no woman. She's not been created yet. So the way I read Genesis 2 is that Genesis 2 is giving us a fuller explanation of what has happened in day 6 of creation. And so God is speaking to Adam. He speaks to Adam in the beginning of chapter 2. And then we get to verse 18 of chapter 2 and we find this. Then the Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. See, he's by himself. There is no woman yet. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. There's no one to correspond to him. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the detailed description of marriage, which was the context in which man and woman were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In verse 18, God makes a declaration. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. This is the only part of creation where we see God say something is not good. 
And since at the end of day six, he said that it was very good, we know that this is still happening in day six. And so he says it's not good for man to be alone. He's going to make a helper suitable for him. And then he puts Adam to sleep. Adam had spent time naming the animals. There had not been a creature found that corresponded to him. God puts Adam to sleep and he fashions the woman out of Adam's rib. And then what we see is that God presents her. He brings her to Adam. And notice again what he says in verse 23. This is, now, this is Adam's words. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam had just spent part of the day naming the animals. They were not bone of his bones or flesh of his flesh. But she was. He says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He gives her her first name. Her first name is not Eve. She doesn't get that name until after the fall. Her first name is simply woman. In the Hebrew, that is the word isha. Adam's name in the Hebrew is the term ish, man. You see how her name corresponds to his name. It is evidence that they are to fit together. They are to be a complementary pair. And then we see the commentary of verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is marriage. This is marriage pre-fall in the Garden of Eden. And so therefore, God has designed the sexual relationship to be expressed through the context of marriage. Now, what we see in this one simple verse, in verse 24, we see uh, the realities of marriage. We see that marriage is a comprehensive covenantal union between one man and one woman that is designed to endure for a lifetime and directed towards the rearing of the next generation. It is comprehensive and covenantal. We see elements of a covenant here that we see throughout. We don't have time to get into all that this morning, but we see elements of a covenant. We see, a, we see an intimate relationship. We see a public oath. Adam is taking an oath before God when he says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We see, we see uh, coordinating signs of the covenant. He has given her a name. And then we also see the sexual relationship as a coordinating sign. And we see obligations that they are there to be together. They are one flesh joined together for a lifetime. So it's a comprehensive covenantal union between one man and one woman. Verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. They're both singular and they're both singular on purpose. So it's a comprehensive covenantal union between one man and one woman designed to endure for a lifetime. They are one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. And it is directed towards the rearing of the next generation, which is what this one flesh union leads to back in verse 20, chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That is what marriage is intended to be right here in verse 24. You may say, how do you get all that? How do you know that all leads to marriage? It's because every other passage relating to marriage that we see in Scripture is based upon Genesis 2.24. So much so that when Jesus teaches on marriage, Matthew 19 and Mark 10, when Paul teaches on marriage in Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 7, they both either quote directly 
or allude to Genesis 2.24. In fact, when Jesus teaches on marriage, he's being confronted by the Pharisees and he teaches on marriage and, and, uh, and he, he's telling them what marriage is intended to be. He quotes both Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 as his foundation for marriage. And Jesus concludes with, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In Matthew 19, 6. So this is God's design for sexuality. That sexuality is to be expressed within the context of marriage that is a comprehensive covenantal union between one man and one woman designed to endure for a lifetime and directed toward the rearing of the next generation. What we see this morning is countercultural. It provides an identity that the culture does not want to accept. But it provides an identity that is much greater and much more comprehensive than what culture tells us. We see here in this text that there is no need for an identity crisis. There's no need to question who God has created us to be. Instead, he tells us right here that we are created in his image. We are created male and female, and we're created for one another in the context of marriage for the godly expression of our sexuality. That is who God made us to be. That is where we find our identity. Now, as you walk away this morning, what, are, what, what do you do with this? Well, the first thing you want to do is to recognize where your identity is, and that is in Christ. Do not let anyone tell you any differently. You are made to be like him. When it comes to questions of gender and sexuality, recognize there is no fear and no shame in building your understanding of sexuality and gender on the foundation of God's word. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. And lastly, recognize that we can, we can argue and debate and vote till we're blue in the face. But the only thing that is truly going to change the culture in which we live is for people to turn to Christ and to trust him and be changed by his word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence. We ask you to remind us of who we are made in your image to be like you. Lord, we pray that our lives would reflect your nature and your character and your attributes to the world all around us. That when people look at us, they may see our good works and glorify our Father 
who is in heaven. And Father, as we, in, as we encounter those who face an identity crisis about who they are or how they should express themselves, Lord, help us first to start with showing them your love and your design for all of us. And that is first to be in a relationship with you and then to live out the life that you have called us to live. In Jesus' name.